Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Dr. Geert Verhelst, one of the world's leading experts on cholesterol and diabetes, who will be visiting South Africa next month and we'll be catching up with him back home where he is in Belgium. Chanel Elbertain is the program manager for the South African Federation for Mental Health, and they want to draw attention to the fact that mental health is at the bottom of national priorities when it should, in fact, be receiving prime attention. Heather Picton is the founder and CEO of ADHASA, the Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Support Group of Southern Africa, and they will be holding their annual parents' conference this coming weekend, which is targeted at caregivers, and they are calling on all parents and guardians to attend. And then I caught up with Professor John Oxford recently when he was in Cape Town, and he's Professor of Virology at St. Bart's and the London School of Dentistry, and we chatted about the recent Global Infection Challenge Survey. And just a reminder that if you need any information regarding Health Matters, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Health Matters on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can do so by email on healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Introducing more savings from Specsavers. Now you can get between 250 and 1,000 Rand off the normal industry price for your prescription lenses. That's right, up to 1,000 Rand off your prescription lenses. Another reason why we are South Africa's leading eye care group. Change to Specsavers for affordable eye care and a whole lot more. T's and C's apply. The Minister of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, Ms. Tina Jumat-Peterson, intends to declare a particular list of trees, champion trees. These would be protected under Section 12.1a.b of the National Forests Act of 1998. Interested and affected parties are invited to submit written comments on the proposed list. For the full list of the proposed champion trees, you can visit the department's website at www.daff.gov.za or contact Ms. Shimani Zavani at 012-309-5765. Health Matters with Karen Key. Belgium-based Dr. Geert Verhelst is a medical doctor and homeopath. He's also a scientific consultant, lecturer and author, and he specializes in the holistic prevention and treatment of diabetes and cholesterol. And he'll be visiting South Africa from the 12th to the 17th of August to present to the health trade on these subjects. Well, I'm catching up with him now before he comes to South Africa, all the way from Belgium. Dr. Verhelst, good evening. Welcome to the show. Uh, Good evening. Dr. Fahelst, you're coming out here to South Africa, and uh, why are we here in South Africa, and in Africa in particular, at risk when it comes to diabetes and cholesterol? What is it about us? Well, first of all, I have to say diabetes and a high cholesterol level is a worldwide problem. It's a pandemic. But when we look at the, at the figures, we see that diabetes especially is more progressing in Africa. And... Um, the reason is that we see that there is a relationship between uh, diabetes and poverty. Uh, we see more progression in low and middle income countries when it comes down to diabetes. And you probably want to know why that is. Yes, I'm, I, want to, well, I really do. <laughs> uh, in Africa, uh, there is more poverty and more and more people that are living in urban in urban settings. Now, 
uh, it's a bitter truth, but nowadays healthy, simple, basic food is more expensive than the calorie-rich, nutrient-depleted food that we can find in urban settings, in the local supermarket, for instance. So people with a low budget are more prone to buy or, uh, that calorie-rich, nutrient-deprived food. So this can render them more obese, too. So then we have two factors, a bad diet, obesity, and because they are living in urban settings, there's also uh, the sedentary lifestyle. Well, these three factors, bad diet, obesity, and uh, sedentary lifestyle, are the cornerstones of diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. And lately, there is another thing uh, that struck me. Um, I read um, or I saw a documentary about Ghana. It's an African country. And they say, look, overweight is not only the problem for people uh, that tend to buy that cheap uh, food. Uh, Overweight is also a sign of prosperity. So for people that can afford uh, food, uh, that can afford healthy food, still they will choose the typical Western uh, refined food and uh, they, they become overweight by it and they find that it's a sign of prosperity. In quite some countries, in quite some African countries, being lean or being skinny is not a sign of optimal health and is sometimes a sign of uh, having not enough money. So there are several factors that contribute to the fact that African countries are more prone uh, to develop uh, diabetes. Now, uh, South Africa being an African country, uh, there we have the same tendency. It's very difficult to find official statistics, but Estimates vary from between 3 and 7 million people that have diabetes. Lots of people that have diabetes are not diagnosed. Maybe like 80% of people that have diabetes, especially type 2, do not know that they have diabetes. Now, something I have spoken about on the show quite frequently is the fact that it is so much more expensive to eat healthily because that the healthy food is, as you say, so much more expensive. But is it possible for people on a very tight budget to live and eat healthily, though? Well, it should be possible, but then they uh, they should go back to nature, let's say, uh, maybe grow their own vegetables, grow their own, own fruits. Um, but it's it's uh, well, it's difficult. Uh, I think, in fact, there should be measures on uh, by the government to influence the food industry to stop making all those refined uh, processed foods and to switch to healthy basic food, uh, that would be maybe more um, uh, treating the problem at the, at the base. You know what I mean? Uh, but I have to admit, it's not easy. Uh, I read a UK study. Um, it dates from 2007, but it said that a health-conscious dietary pattern is almost double as expensive as a low-quality, monotonous, omnivore uh, food pattern. So uh, there is some work on the shelf for the government, I think, but people that really want to have access to the simple, basic, healthy food, well, maybe they should grow their own vegetables, they grow their own fruits, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. eat whole grains instead of refined grains.
But it's, it's difficult. It I is. have to admit that. It is difficult. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that you were a medical doctor as well as a homeopath. And some, when we're talking about treating things like diabetes and um, high cholesterol, what do you think about statins? Because there's been a lot of talk about things like cinnamon for, for you know people with diabetes type 2 and red yeast rice for possibly helping to lower cholesterol levels. What is your feeling on all of that? Well, uh, maybe let's first talk about the diabetes problem, the, the blood glucose level that is too high. Well, uh, there is a traditional Asian medicine for centuries, and it's simple cinnamon, cinnamon powder. Now, um, in Western medicine, we want to see some proof. So the latest years, there have been quite some studies, and it's true, cinnamon powder or cinnamon can help uh, decrease or reduce the fasting blood glucose level. Last year, there was a meta-analysis, an an analysis of several cinnamon studies, and it showed that the mean decrease of the fasting blood glucose level was 0.9 millimoles per liter. So that is really a substantial help to, uh, to use next to uh, your uh, healthy food. Now, um, of course, anybody could buy cinnamon powder like that, uh, but the truth is you have different qualities of cinnamon powder. You have the cinnamonum virum, which is the real cinnamon powder. You have cinnamonum cassia, which is uh, uh, not so good as real cinnamon. When you buy cinnamon powder, you're, you don't know if you have the real, the good stuff. So um, uh, there are food supplements that use the right type of cinnamon and especially make water-soluble extracts of it. Why water-soluble extracts? Because um, science has shown uh, that the the compounds that lower the blood glucose level are water-soluble, and so you don't need the fat-soluble compounds like coumarines. And some people do not support coumarines that well. So the good news is that if you buy a food supplement with water-based cinnamon extract, you have uh, a food supplement that is well-researched and that is free of coumarines for people who would uh, be sensible for that. So when it comes down to a natural help and uh, next to a healthy food pattern, next to having more physical activity, when you want an additional help, I would really recommend uh, cinnamon extract. Um, and the good news is you can, you can combine it with medication. Hmm. Uh, on the South African market, you have uh, products that uh, contain that water-based cinnamon extract, and they're called Diabesin Original and Diabesin Extra. And the red yeast rice for cholesterol? Well, yes. Um, the other problem uh, we're dealing with is that a lot of people have high cholesterol levels. Now, first of all, if you have a high cholesterol level and you don't have a signs of a cardiovascular disease, in my opinion, you should not uh, use the medication statins. Because uh, when you have healthy people without apparent cardiovascular disease who only have a high cholesterol level, well, simply a change of lifestyle and a safe food supplement like red yeast rice can help lower the cholesterol level. So you don't need those statins uh, because statins, we have to know, they also can have secondary effects 
short term and on the long term. And especially for people in the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, so I mean for people that do not have a cardiovascular disease and only have an elevated cholesterol level, for these people, you, you should not, I, I would never recommend statins. But could I just, <clears throat> excuse me, could I just add a rider that if you are on statins, please don't suddenly stop taking them. Please discuss this with your doctor before you do that. Well, of course, that's that's true. Uh, and every on every occasion, or, or uh, I would always ask, I would always advise to ask the opinion of your doctor. Uh, but I must say, my patients, I never put them on statins uh, in the primary prevention prevention of cardiovascular disease. Maybe you could use uh, statins. Uh, for the secondary prevention, for people that already suffered from a stroke or a heart infarction, or for people with a genetic disorder with a very difficult name, familial hypercholesterolemia, for those people you could recommend statins. But the truth is that most of the people could be helped with a simple and safe food supplement, red yeast rice. Dr. Verhulst, uh, yes, I'm really... Sorry. Oh, sorry, no, I, um, I just wanted to say thank you very much indeed for your time this evening, and I wish you a very successful trip to South Africa, and hopefully you'll be telling a lot of our doctors here all about these these uh, new... Well, not they're not new, but all these different ideas of treatment for diabetes and cholesterol. But thank you very much indeed for your time this evening, all the way from Belgium. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Belgium-based Dr. Geert Verhelst is one of the world's leading experts on cholesterol and diabetes, and he'll be visiting South Africa next month. Details of his South African tour can be found at www.otc.chilibuzz.com or on OTC Pharma SA's Facebook page. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, mental health care receives a disproportionately small proportion of health budgets and psychiatric services lag far behind other services in funding, infrastructure development, human resources and the provision of appropriate medical supplies and treatments. Chanel Elbertain is the Programme Manager for the South African Federation for Mental Health. Chanel, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, evening. Thank you so much for having me. It is rather a sad sort of situation when it comes to mental health and psychiatric yeah, wellness it's, it's it's just as you said if they've got the least amount of funding and when you look at the number of beds relating to the number of uh, the per population it's actually quite horrifying yes most definitely um that's why we we've you know come up with this july campaign we we're trying to focus on raising awareness around the lack of hospital beds for psychiatric patients and this formed part of a larger awareness program on the upscaling of mental health services that the South African Federation will be running for over three years. We're also going to be doing extensive research into mental health resources in the country and basically take that information to advocate and lobby for the upscaling of mental health services and we're going to be asking government to address the issues in a five-year plan. This um, is- as you said, <laughs> As you said, mental health is not recognized as a key health priority. And even though it's estimated that by 2020, depression will be the second most disabling health condition in the world, which is a very scary statistic. The sad thing about mental health care users is that they're often voiceless and they, you know, they, they don't really have a voice out there. That, I think, is where you as the Federation come in to be the voice of the people. Yes, most definitely. 
It's actually, as we're looking through some of the, the statistics, I mean, it was something like per 100,000 population, there's 2.8 beds in okay. that's in psychiatric inpatient units in general hospitals. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, 100,000 and there's 2.8 beds. You know, there, there's not just going to be 2.8 people needing a bed. Of course. And the thing is, um, you know, hospital beds or psych- in psychiatric hospitals, mm. it's actually a, a form of a, a you know, well outdated form of care. And um, this reduction of beds, okay, basically the Minister of, of Health, Aaron Molitsedi, in a 2012 summit, he proposed that we should, as South Africa, we should move away from a hospice-centric approach and basically incorporate mental health into primary health care or community-based rehabilitation instead of institutionalizing people in hospitals. Um, now, there's been a reduction, a 7.7 reduction in hospital beds. However, these resources saved from these reductions, they haven't been reallocated into acute facilities in district or regional hospitals or community-based rehabilitation. So we're in quite a dilemma. I think the other big problem that you face as well, Chanel, is this revolving door phenomenon where people are possibly discharged way too early or they are discharged and they don't adhere to the treatment regime when they're out of the hospital setting. So then they end up back there again. Most definitely. I mean, yeah, most of, as you mentioned, I mean, most of the, the reason for this re- revolving door phenomenon is early discharge um, owing to bed shortages. shortages. What can be done about that? Because, you know, a lot of it is to do with, you know, the adherence to taking your medication mm. once you've left. And I think we see that a lot in other areas of, of health care when it comes to things like um, TB, for example, where people have to be on long-term medication. And it's that it's that compliance is, is a huge problem. Yes, yeah, definitely. Adherence, I mean, adherence to medication is very important, but also having support structures for for the the mental health care user after post discharge um that's really important and you know if there isn't a, a appropriate um aftercare you know people will relapse and will go back into the into the psychiatric hospitals and yeah as you as you say i i mean it's a, this revolving door phenomenon is a, a huge problem would it make sense to to have possibly more community-based nurses who would be able to go to the patients to make sure that they're taking the medication? But I'm, obviously I'm assuming there's a staff shortage as well. But would that be one yes, way of huge. possibly of, of alleviating the need for the beds? Yes, and putting funding into community-based rehabilitation. So let's say a community-based uh, residential facility for people with psychiatric disabilities. We had a really sh- we have a huge shortage, especially for for children and adolescents. Uh, resources are grossly inadequate. Um, they said that there's only 1.4 percent of outpatient facilities, and 3.8 of acute beds in general hospitals for children and adolescents, and that's definitely not enough. So what is the Mental Health Federation going to be doing to push this forward? I mean, are you working tirelessly yeah. as it is? And I mean, you know, are you winning? Yes, most definitely. Um, you know, we, we've, with this awareness campaign, we, we've basically urged the, our 17 mental health societies across the, the country to advocate and lobby. Um, we've also asked them to fill out, a, well, for their services to fill out a questionnaire because we want to gather as much data. And especially, 
qualitative data, you know, the people who have experienced these shortages and, and lack of resources and just how it has affected them. And um, what, what normal citizens can do, I mean, there's a lot that normal citizens can do. They can support and mobilize people with mental illness to self-advocate uh, for change. They can volunteer to help. They can contact us and, and get involved. Um, and as well, it's really important for, for people to promote positive attitudes and non-discrimination and equal opportunities for people with mental health. Um, problems. That I think is, is a big issue as well, is the discrimination and, and how are we doing with that? I mean, because that's something I talk about quite a lot on my show, the Disability yes. Report, where it's almost, a, especially a mental illness, it's almost a silent illness. You know, you, if you look at a person, yes. they don't look like there's anything wrong with them. And, yeah. you know, so they say, no, I have this problem. And then there is there is a form of discrimination. Yes, there definitely. Like you say, it is a silent illness. And, you know, this is just evident in the fact that uh, the Department of Health and Social Development, you know, or government is not, there is no specific budget for mental health. You know, we get our budget from the general general health um, budget. So, I mean, there's, I would say there's even even discrimination in, in, in there. You know, it, it, it's a silent, a silent issue. How can people actually get involved, though, Chanel? Because you say, you know, you can volunteer, but how would the yes. man, regular man in the street actually be able to volunteer to help in any way? Okay, I would say raise awareness on this. Because, um, you know, the more awareness you raise, people people are aware of it, and people start talking and, and, and making noise and changing perceptions, you know, slowly changing people's perceptions about it. They can also contact us, um, and we would, definitely be in need um, of the of the volunteering and there are ways um, which they can which they can you know contribute towards this raising awareness and actually doing something about it. Um, petitions is also a very important advocacy tool or lobbying tool. Well, if you haven't um, thought of any, we can well, if if people out there haven't thought of what to do for their sixty-seven minutes on <laughs> Thursday for Mandela Day, here's something you can make a start. And as they say, make every day a Mandela Day. So don't just think you have to yes. do this on Thursday. This could be an ongoing project for you. Um, you know, do sixty-seven minutes every every week or every month or something, but just do something. And this is one of those things that really, really needs your help and assistance. As Chanel says, it's one of those things that we need to be able to get rid of the discrimination. We need to raise more awareness. We re- need to do so much to help people. As, as we said, it's a silent illness. Chanel, I wish you much success with with your ongoing work in this field. And um, hopefully we'll have a lot, a lot of people deciding to take this up as a challenge for their 67 minutes um, for Mandela Day and possibly in, into the future. I hope so. I'll give out all the contact details now, so if they want to get hold of you, they can do that. All right. Thank you so much, Cora. Thanks, Chanel. Thanks for your time. Okay. Good night to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Chanel Elbertain is the Program Manager for the South African Federation for Mental Health. And to find out how you can be of assistance or to find the Mental Health Society closest to you, you can contact the South African Federation for Mental Health on 011-781-1852. That's 011-781-1852. Or you can visit their website. It's www.safmh.org.za for more information. Health Matters with Karen Key.
Well, parenting children with ADHD can be an overwhelming experience. Many parents and guardians of children with ADHD don't know how to cope with challenges that come up with parenting them, resulting in frustration as well as mental and physical exhaustion for the parent or the guardian. Heather Picton is the founder and CEO of ADHASA, the Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Support Group of Southern Africa, and they'll be holding their annual ADHASA Parents Conference this coming weekend. Heather, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Lovely to be with you. I gather that the start of this foundation was through your own personal experience. Absolutely. I had a child that I didn't know. I didn't understand his problems. I didn't have the coping skills to deal with these different challenges. And it was difficult for him, difficult for me. Everybody thought I was just neurotic. Don't they just love calling mothers neurotic when you know that there's a problem and you need to deal with it? You know, it, it, it makes me so mad when people do that. Now, you're, you've got your annual conference coming up. But before we get to that, just talk to me a little bit about the work that Adhasa actually does. You've got a wonderful website. I went to have a look at it. And if you have a child with ADHD or ADD, go and have a look at that website because there is a load of information on there. I'll give out all the information of the address in a moment. But really well, well worth it. Tell me about the work that you do at Adhasa, Heather. Well, basically... There are several different areas that we follow. Number one is that we're there to give support to parents who are struggling with their kiddies. And they can get support. and We have a limited amount of counseling available. But a lot of our work that we do is through dissemination of information. So we've got books on the subject. And our conference is one of the prime ways of helping parents because if they could be struggling as hard as anything... If they come to the conference, they they get the full picture and they go home with coping strategies. I think a lot of the time with something like this, Heather, people often think that they're the only one out there with this problem. And it must be quite a relief for parents or guardians to discover that they're not alone. Oh, totally. Totally. Because one of the worst things about this is that parents live in this little self-made cocoon of fear, literally, and sadness and low self-esteem because they're not coping. And when they find that other people are in the same boat and facing exactly the same challenges, well, they can come out, make friends, and and learn other each other's solutions. And that's actually very, very valuable as well. So for those listening who possibly have a child that they're not quite sure if, it, if the child has ADD or ADHD, could you just give us some idea of the symptoms so that possibly they could say, oh, that's what it is? Okay. And before I even do that, I just want to make a comment that the solutions that we give are aimed at children with ADHD. That includes the ADD category. But basically, the, the solutions we offer actually can help almost any mum on this planet. Okay, so, so now, let's you, get back to the symptoms. Mm. The first is inattention. There are three main symptoms that we look for. And inattention is these kids that don't seem to listen when you speak to them. They don't follow instructions. They, you say, go and get me some water and bring me my slippers. The kid wanders out the room and then picks up a ball and starts playing. They're forever losing things and they for, they're forgetful all the time. And they just don't seem to remember from one moment to the next what they have done. They learn their school at home, work at home, and then they go to school and they've forgotten it. Totally easily distracted. Now, when a child's behaving like that, 
it's so easy to say he's not trying. He's really not even putting any effort. He doesn't, couldn't be bothered. But believe you me, that kid is trying very hard. It just doesn't come together. Then many of them have the symptoms of overactivity, the hyperactivity, where they're always fidgeting. They've got to get up. They've got to walk. And they're running and climbing. It's almost as though they're driven by a motor and can affect um, verbal stuff. They just never stop talking. And so that's two of the major symptoms we've looked at. Then impulsivity are these kids that, well, you're asking a question and they've got the answer already. They're sitting in the kids in the classroom. The teacher says, well, who did? And the kid's oh, hand is up and he's jumping up and down in his desk. He doesn't even know what the question is. They find it difficult waiting their turn, turns and they often intrude and interrupt on others. So those are the three basic sets of symptoms. And for a diagnosis, you need to have, you can be diagnosed just on the basis of inattention or on the basis of hyperactivity or on a combination. The thing is that these symptoms must be, have been present for at least six months and certainly not age-appropriate because all kids have these symptoms at some stage. I was about to say that a lot of parents sitting out there thinking, well, aren't they, isn't that what kids are supposed to do? Absolutely, yes. But when, when the symptoms are such that they are actually interfering with the child's life, he's always in trouble, his self-esteem is dropping and really not coping, he's not coping at home or at school, that's when you need to say, okay, maybe I need to go and find out more about this kitty. Now, coming up at the conference, you've got some rather interesting topics that are going to be discussed. Do you want to give us some idea of what will be happening at the conference? It's over two days, the 20th and the 21st. Would people need to come to both days, Heather? Well, yes, because we've got different topics on both days. There is just so much that we can offer, and we like to give a full picture so people can go home with a, a full understanding of their child, and we just can't squash it into one day. Okay, so, so um, it's two days. It's, are you going to be having it at the Delta Park School in Johannesburg? That's correct. It's in Blegari. On the 20th and 21st of July. That's this coming weekend. That's and right. uh, some, of the, some of the topics you'll be discussing? Well, firstly, we're going to start kick off by looking at nutrition because certainly that is what changed my child's life and was the basis on which I founded the support group. And every single child on this earth would benefit from eating healthy food and getting away from the junk and, well, empty calories that get into, into the body and don't do anything for the body. So we look at nutrition and how it affects the brain. And then, again, all, every single one of us of our conferences has got the medical aspect. Um, for nutrition, Stuart is, Wilson is coming, a nutritionist is coming up from Mattel, and for the medical aspects, Professor Andre Fenter is coming up from the University of the Free State, and they are both brilliant speakers. We also need to look at these kiddies' social difficulties because too many of them are unable to make friends. They, don't, they just don't have social savvy, and they can't even play on the playground because they don't know how to play. So we need to look at social social skills, and basically working on their social and their emotional well-being because the two go together, and that will be done by psychologist Anita Dekeris Wagner. Also, they're all brilliant speakers. And then we also look 
at kiddies. They've got to do homework at home, haven't they? And one of the most difficult things is to get the child to pay attention. And I'm sure there are thousands of mums every day that say, pay attention, and the kid doesn't know what on earth that means. So Mary Heim is going to be showing us how to get that child's attention up and running, activate his attention. And then Jane Jarvis is coming up from the Cape, and she is going to show us how to make homework fun. So there are times that you can actually have your child begging to do his homework. I would have lived for that day. <laughs> I would have absolutely lived for that day. So, you know, yes. it's a case of, of what you're saying now, Heather, it almost sounds as if it's not just a conference for parents with children with ADHD or ADD. It could almost be for anybody with a child that you just feel that you just need to get a better grip on this parenting thing. Because as I always used to tell my son, it didn't come with a book. You know, you just have to forgive me half the time because, you know, you're making it up as you go along. And so if you've got something like this that's going to help you, I would be there with bells on if I still had children at school. Well, yeah, and it would have been a good place. I just have to whisper that one of the books that we do have for sale at this conference is called The Manual That Never Came With Your Child. It's a bit late now, Heather. It's a little bit late. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those parents out there, there is now a book. There was not a book in my day. It sounds like there is now a book. Sounds Mm. perfect. And as you see, you've actually published um, two books with the hyperactivity and ADD, caring and coping, and teaching and ADHD in the Southern African classroom. You've been involved with those too. So are those going to be available if people are interested in getting hold of those, Heather? Oh, yes, they will. They'll be there as well. So there seems to, it's one of those things that if you have a child with ADHD or ADD, it's a, it's a not-to-be-missed thing, unfortunately, only in Johannesburg. Any plans on moving it around the country at all? We would love to get it around the country. At this moment, unfortunately, funds are the main, major problem. Well, if you're a parent of a child with ADHD or, AD, or ADD, I think you should start mobilizing local parents to uh, start pushing for fundraising to get one of these conferences around the country, wherever it is that you are. Heather, I wish you much success with the conference on the weekend, and uh, hopefully you'll have lots and lots of parents being very, very happy at the end of it all. So thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you very much, Karen. Heather Picton is the founder and CEO of ADHASA, the Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Support Group of Southern Africa, and they'll be holding their annual ADHASA Parents Conference this coming weekend at the Delta Park School in, I think she said, Blegari in Johannesburg. And for more information, you can call them on 011-888-7655, email info at adhasa.co.za or www.adhasa.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Recently in South Africa is Professor John Oxford. He is Professor of Virology at St. Bart's and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in the UK. He's also the chair of the Global Hygiene Council. Now, they have recently conducted some surveys. They've done the Global Infection Challenge Survey, and they did a thing called the Good Germs versus Bad Germs debate. Rather interesting, and we're going to actually find out now how we should be keeping ourselves healthy, what we should be doing, and why aren't we doing it? Professor Oxford, welcome to South Africa. We have chatted before and you've recently conducted this new survey. What are the outcomes? What have you found? Because you did part of that was done here in South Africa. You had just over a thousand respondents from South Africa. What did you find here? Well, we were interested to see in South Africa about people's worries. You know, do, do, first of all, do you acknowledge in South Africa there's an infectious disease problem? And having acknowledged that, what, what infectious 
disease are you most worried about? And the power of this study, I think, is that we can compare South Africa with 17 other countries around the world. So, you know, we're not not just interested, we're interested in a global issue here. So we ask people, what what are you concerned about? You are very different here because other countries, the other 17 countries, are, are worried about influenza, epidemic and pandemic influenza. Here, your biggest worry, your biggest concern are infections that give you upset tummies and diarrhea. So enteric infections. And I can understand that. I can see that there's a kind of a a hygiene issue here. And you're not the only country with a hygiene issue, but I can understand that. So that was the first thing that was different in South Africa compared to any other country in the world, your focus on enteric infections. How do we fare compared to the rest of the world? We're not the worst, I think you told me before we started uh, chatting. We're not the worst, we're not the best. Where do we fall and what should we be doing to improve our standing? Well, it's a very delicate question, I think, to answer if you say, oh, you're the best or not. And I, I often get asked, you know, uh, is, my, is this country the best? And I, I always kind of think of my own country, where are we? Well, I wish we were at the top, but we're not in England. We're kind of middling, and you're middling too. I would say you're a bit on the lower end of the middling, but you're definitely not the worst. You're definitely not the worst. And I wouldn't expect you to be. I mean, the society like you've been developing here, getting more and more people educated, I wouldn't expect you to be way at the bottom. Definitely not, and you're not. So uh, as regards what you can do about it, you can do what we all need to do. There's no country that I've ever been to, and I've been on the chairing the Hygiene Council, which, of which I'm terrifically proud, um, for eight years. So I travel around the world each year. There's no country which has not got a problem. You know, you might think some countries are pristine, but they've all got their dirty secrets, to be frank about it, whether they know about it or not. So what one can do, what you can do, what I can do in my own country, what every other country in the world can do, is focus on this um, topic of hygiene. And and it's pretty simple stuff. And I, I do find myself bemused sometimes why why we're not all doing it more including myself actually um and it basically boils down to the to an acknowledgement of of the fact that when bacteria and viruses spread uh, one of the major ways that they spread is via people's hands because even with an infection like i'm interested in influenza people tend to shield their cough or their they shouldn't but they tend to shield their cough or their sneeze by their hands um, and then the virus gets on their hands, they don't wash their hands properly, they shake hands with someone, and the infection's transferred. Even an, an aerial an aerial infection is transferred via the hands. And of course, other fecal infections, you know, fecal-oral, obviously spread by hands. So a lot of infections spread by the hands. So that's why hand hygiene, washing your hands properly with soap and disinfectant hot water, is the most single critical thing that any country can and should do to break a chain of infection. Am I correct in thinking that a bacteria can actually last for, I think, it's up to 48 hours? So if you don't wash your hands, you, that, that, inf- that bacteria can be lingering? Yes, it's perfectly correct. I mean, um, bacteria can not only linger, they can increase in numbers depending on where they've landed. And not only, just your, not only your hands, because, of course, bacteria and viruses can land on surfaces, you know, on the, like the wooden table here or on the kitchen, in the, on the, in the kitchen sink. Bacteria can increase in numbers, especially if the temperature is reasonably high. Viruses, they don't increase in numbers, they decay, but they can hang around for at least a day, influenza, um, SARS, viruses like that, they can hang around for some time. That gives you, that tells you two things. First of all, you can pick up an infection from a, from a surface, but it also gives you the opportunity to kill that bacteria, 
that bacterium or virus. So, you know, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. I like to look at it in that way. So they make them vulnerable. They are vulnerable. They're vulnerable on your hands. Because if you get a, a, a soap or disinfectant, you can kill them. These, these disinfectants are formulated. I mean, Dettol is an example. It's formulated so you can actually kill an organism. And you can do it on the surface as well. So we can take action. You don't need me. You don't need a doctor. You can do it yourself. That's the power of it. I'm just going to scare you a little bit now. I'll just, if you go onto the Hygiene Council's website, which is www.hygienecouncil.org, on the front page, it's enough to scare you into washing everything properly. It says there that one single bacterium can become more than 8 million bacteria in less than a day. And did you know that your kitchen sink is 100,000? 100,000, yes, you heard that right, times more germs there than in the toilet. And these are just basic things I think we just don't think about doing because we think, oh, the bathroom is the worst place. Now, I remember speaking to you once before and you said you'd prefer to eat your dinner in the bathroom. It's probably cleaner than the kitchen. Yes, and I, I think that's probably still the case. It is... It is, it is a result of a focus, and I can understand that, of householders. We know that instinctively that toilets are, are pretty, can be pretty dirty places, so all the effort of cleanliness, disinfection, has been concentrated in probably every house in the world on the toilet. That means that the toilet's pretty pristine. But it also means that effort that should have been put, some effort should have been put into the kitchen has been diverted into the toilet, if you see what I mean. And and that does come to the conclusion sometimes, you do come to the conclusion that maybe the toilet is safer to eat your food than, than the actual kitchen. They don't, we don't only think that, we've got some data to prove that, because not this year, but other years we've gone around the world and actually taken little um, cotton swabs into people's homes and, and, and swabbed, you know, moved the cotton around um, in different areas in the kitchen, in the toilet, in the bathroom, and all this sort of thing. And we actually enumerate and quantify the number of bacteria sitting there. So we actually got the figures, and we know that toilets are pretty often pretty pristine. And the kitchen, we do know the kitchen is full of bacteria, bacteria that come from feces. And the answer, the why that happens is either children come into the kitchen and have not washed their hands properly, we know that children are very unreliable and they're so supervised. So they, they have one source of it. Or in terms of you're bringing into the kitchen, like I do into my kitchen, uncooked chicken, for example, and they're usually they're covered in fecal organisms just in the very way, they, the way they've been killed. So you, the, the, the kitchen does make you vulnerable. And I've noticed the survey we've done in South Africa this year. We've asked people, where, where are the bugs lurking? Where do you catch things? Well, most people, quite rightly, I think, conclude that they'll catch things on public transport. You do catch things, you can, because you're very close to people, you're touching things all the time. Very few people, on the other hand, uh, think that you catch things in the, home, in the home. So I quite acknowledge public transport, I quite acknowledge going out in the community and so on and so forth, but I'd like more people to think carefully about the infections they can pick up in their own home. And not the least of the problem is if you have children, um, children are not very hygienic, in spite of the fact we're trying to teach them to be hygienic, and I hope they will be, and I hope the next generation will be more hygienic than my generation, for example, and I'm sure that could be the case. Um, but in spite of that, at the moment, children can come home and bring in infection from the school, a respiratory infection, an enteric infection, bring it home and, and spread it in the home. That's why you're not safe, unfortunately, even in your own home, but you can do something about it, and what you can do is increase your hygiene level. And I would like to see people in every country of the world, South Africa, my own country, um, washing their hands eight times a day. And I, I'm too often going to countries where we do the survey and find that people are either washing their hands once a day, particularly men, 
men are terrible at it once a day or even no times a day. And that's just not good enough. It means you're not thinking about yourself. And even worse, you're not thinking about other people. Because we have a dual responsibility. Do not get yourself infected. If you do get infected, you have a second responsibility not to pass it on to someone else, to some innocent person that you touch, shake hands with and you've transferred an infection. That's why this hygiene is so important. That's why I think the origin of it from the goddess Hygieia, Greece, 600 BC, I mean, she would turn in her grave if she should come back now and see the state of hygiene in most countries in the world. Well, your big push at the moment is getting at the children, because if you can get them young and get them to grow up with this knowledge, because the problem is that we, from your survey, I've noticed that people seem to understand where the problem is, but they don't seem to be doing anything about it. And the way you're going about it now is trying to get at the children and get them to understand what the problems are. Yes, it's quite right. The education level now in in South Africa and in in England, most countries, 18 countries around the world, uh, the knowledge base is there up in the head, and we're finding but still it's not being translated in, in, into action. That is the most difficult thing always, isn't it? We do things, we continue smoking, we know we shouldn't, and drinking, you know, those things, and, and hygiene is kind of into that category. We know we should be doing it, but we're not. So I think the way to tackle it more and more, I mean, for example, in, when we were in Johannesburg yesterday, we went to a school. We launched our talk at a school, and that was not just by chance, that was for a real reason, um, that schools are the centre of education, and we think that hygiene should be much more into the curriculum than it has been in the past, probably more than any other thing, certainly into the science uh, curriculum to explain all this and, and it was a wonderful occasion I mean the children were full of enthusiasm they were doing the et- the cough etiquette they weren't shielding their hands which is the old etiquette they're were, they were coughing into their elbow because no one ever clutches them by the elbow and so you break the chain of infection um, they were being taught all the six steps of hand hygiene how long it takes to wash their hands which is quite some it's not a three second job and, and it was just a wonderful occasion and I think that will look that will they'll never forget that I'll never forget it anyway. Um, they'll never forget it, and they'll move on to adulthood, carrying that knowledge with them. Just as in schools in South, in South America last year, the teacher said, oh, they always brush their teeth, always brush their teeth, you know, after they've had their little school lunch. But did they wash their hands before they... No, they didn't. So, but in the end, I think this education will, the only way forward really in communities around the world, and it is so important, this world of infection has not gone. And as we get more people on this planet... And as we move into areas of the planet we've never been before, more and more crowding, there'll be more and more issues of infection. It's not gone away. So we just as well get it sorted now before we get into real problems. And just to let you know, Professor Oxford's method of washing your hands, you have to sing happy birthday to yourself at the normal pace. Don't rush it twice. And that's how long it should take you to wash your hands. So not just, as you said, the three-second story. And... Professor, just one other thing. You did this whole good germ, bad germ debate that's going on, and that is also quite interesting as to what came out of that. Yes, we, we, we wanted to see the knowledge base in the community about good germs and bad germs because the fact of the matter is, and, and, and the reason for that is I get quite a lot of um, um, contact, quite a lot of discussion about people saying we're too clean, that it, that we're too clean for our own good, we're too hygienic for our own good, that having a bit of dirt can do us good. There's lots of that, that kind of attitude around. I think almost the opposite. I don't think we should be taking the risk on dirt. You know, we've gone past that. That was 100 years ago that we all did all the dirt thing. And look at the childhood mortality then. 
100 years ago. Now we've got science, we've got the vaccination strategy, we have got antibiotics, but they're getting dangerously thin on the ground. As we've heard from the World Health Organization, it could be the end of the modernist era in, 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 in treatment with these antibiotics. So we have to be extremely careful. And then we've got hygiene. So all the time, I would like to be pressing this, um, this hygiene issue with the thing you can, you can do yourself on it. The concern about the antibiotics, people are wondering what that is. Are you saying that we're coming to the end of that? But that's because of overuse. We are using them too often for things we shouldn't be using them for. The discoverer of penicillin, Alexander Fleming, he would turn in his grave too. You know, it was the most amazing discovery in, 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 the, in the late 30s, that antibiotic. It was revolutionary. The idea that you could stop a, an infection in its tracks. I mean, I, I know the person who did the... Did, I've met the person who did one of the first cases, treated one of the first cases. She said it was absolutely revolutionary. She, she'd never forgotten it. So um, it was astounding. But, if, and he, but he made a warning then, Fleming that if, you, if he ever saw this discovery being sold in your shops, like the corner shop, and, and sold, if he ever saw it being misused, we're going to be in for trouble. Because even then, he knew that bacteria, I mean, they're there and they're squillions, bacteria, and, um, and they can mutate and evolve and become, they can become resistant. They, 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 can, they can avoid the effect of the antibiotic. And that's the situation we are getting into now. So we're getting into a situation where tuberculosis, for example, uh, there are strains which seem to be resistant to the effects of every known anti-TB drug. We are, we've already got to the issue of uh, gram-positive streptococci, streptococcal and staphylococcal infections, which are resistant as well. And I think one of the issues, there are two big issues. One is the misuse of antibiotics, the gross misuse of antibiotics in the farming industry. That's factory farming. That's not proper animal husbandry, not a proper farm. That's being misuse of animals really, and, and they're, they're, they're trying to cope with it by feeding them antibiotics to stop them dying of other infections. So gross misuse of antibiotics in the farming industry, factory farming, in, and also in the community where people are very demanding of antibiotics to a, doc, to a doctor um, for things like sore throats. We know there's a vast excess of use, misuse of antibiotics, of no use whatsoever with sore throats, because 90% or even more of sore throats are not caused by bacteria, but are caused by viruses. And so to prescribe an antibiotic, you're just wasting your time, you're wasting a discovery, and you're increasing the opportunity from bacteria to become resistant to the effects of it. So there are things we can do, there are things we can do, and I think Dr. Chan's from the World Health Organization, her warning um, is just, is very timely. We don't want to get to the end of the precipice here. We just got, we've got to realise this now, and I think now is the time to start changing our, our attitudes. With these drug-resistant bacteria, um, and with TB, of course, you've still got the hygiene, but you don't want to just rely on one thing, but if you're forced to, you can. So even with TB, hygiene is important because those bacteria, tuberculosis bacteria, will contaminate glassware, crockery, homes, everything else. So again, disinfection um, and hygiene is important. So it's not all doom and gloom. There is, I mean, it is to an extent, but there is something that we can actually do about this to stop it. Yes, it's certainly not doom and gloom. And in, in, to that extent, within a year of the discovery of bacteria, this is like Robert Koch, this is like Louis Pasteur, France, Germany, the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, wonderful discoveries all the time about the world of microbes. Within a very short period of time, a group of chemists had got together and said, well, there's one thing we, now we know. Now we know what, what diseases, what causes diseases. We can see them in a the microscope. But what we want to do now is kill them to stop the disease. 
So you had chemists in Germany making disinfectants. I mean, the Detlow came from that sort of area. We had Lister in, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, saying, well, hang on, we can do something in operations. All these operations, half of them fail when I do an operation because the person gets infected with one of these now-known these microbes. So we can spray phenolics and disinfectants in the air during the operation. So within a very short period of the major discovery of these bugs, people were then saying, well, go to the next stage, let's stop them. So it's been a wonderful time of discovery, and it has been ever since, the vaccines, the antibiotics, everything else. But we mustn't let um, us be, we, we shouldn't be derailed at this vital time. And I'm finding too many people are saying to me, well, we don't need to get our children vaccinated. There's no diphtheria around. They're not going to get whooping cough, you know, because there's, there's no longer around. But the fact is, once you start, stop vaccinating, once you stop all these things, they'll come back because the organism has not disappeared. It's just waiting its opportunity. That's the danger that I, I worry about. So at this point, I think what we need to do is wash our hands at every given opportunity, make sure that our kitchens are clean and make sure that we are not cross-infecting other people. And it's basic things that we can do every day and it will make a huge difference. Yes, I think, I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. That's absolutely cast iron. And the, the one extra thing I would add is teach our children to do the same. In fact, to be even better. Than, than us and I can give you one wonderful example I was driving back a few months ago from Cornwall right down in the tip of England back to London I went into a filling station and I know what the usual situation is there the men particularly are bad at hygiene women are a lot better at it and I was inside there and I heard a little lad he must have been 10 he said to his father dad wash your hands do wash your hands and I thought right well you seem to be reaching the right people Professor Oxford thank you very much indeed for your time and we look forward to uh, hearing from you next year when uh, hopefully you'll be back or you'll be bringing out another survey some results and in the meantime we all need to uh, do what you've told us to do and uh, hopefully things won't get as bad as they might predict them to be thank you so much for your time okay pleasure to be here I was speaking there with Professor John Oxford he's a professor of virology at St Bart's and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in the UK and he's also the chair of the Global Hygiene Council now if you'd like to find out some more information the Hygiene Council's website is fabulous there's lots of information on there probably scare you half to death on the front page but that's good go and have a look it's www.hygienecouncil.org Health Matters with Karen Key well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. But before I go, let me tell you about time to travel tomorrow evening. I'll be speaking with a young woman called Michaela. And uh, she was the lucky winner. Oh, well, it wasn't lucky, but by all accounts, had a lot of hard work to do. Michaela Newton, she won the 2013 Ticket to Life Bursary. Now, this is a bursary for hotel management or hospitality hospitality management valued, I think, it's something like 180,000 rand. It's a three-year study bursary. Amazing, amazing opportunity for a young person for the rest of her life, basically. And then also in the My Town feature, now just a reminder for all of those who possibly don't listen on a Wednesday evening, I'm always asking people to tell me about where it is that you live. What is so special about where you live? Let us know. We'd love to share it. And in the My Town feature tomorrow evening, I'll be talking to somebody in the town of Smithfield. She initially emailed me to tell me she lives in the middle of nowhere. And then she said, well, actually, no, it's not actually in the middle of nowhere. It's halfway between Gauteng and, and Grahamstown on the N6 in what she calls the Umper Karoo or the Almost Karoo. So a rather fun show tomorrow evening, so do tune in for that. Well, I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And as I said, I'll be back with you again tomorrow just after nine with Time to Travel. So join me then. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you've missed a contact number or website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za 
Friday or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM.